Hi everyone, and welcome to this podcast series on low-carbohydrate diets and diabetes. My name's Jan Orford, and I'll be your host again today. With today's podcast is the third in this series of three podcasts discussing the impact of low-carbohydrate diet on people with diabetes. We'll discuss the benefits, disadvantages, current research, and dietary guidelines for the macronutrient carbohydrate. I would like to introduce Amy Rush, who is the 2018 CDE of the Year in Western Australia and the Jan Baldwin CDE of the Year. Amy's passion for supporting people with type 1 diabetes began when her brother was diagnosed with diabetes at the age of seven. She wanted him to live the richest life possible and Amy continues to wish this for all her patients today. Amy understands the confusion, fear and loneliness of nighttime diabetes management and created the Diabetes Detective Program which allows her to provide patients with feedback in real time using CGM. Patients share their data with Amy for a week and she offers them advice and solutions 24-7. Amy also believes this is just one way technology can help take diabetes management to the next level. She is an accredited practicing dietitian and credentialed diabetes educator. And in her spare time, she creates rap song parodies with lyrics about type 1. Her latest rap, The Real T1D, was a parody of Eminem's song, The Real Slim Shady. And it went viral, which is pretty fantastic, I think. And hello again, Amy. How are you today? Good, thanks, Jan. Yourself? Good, good. Very hot down here, that's all. <laughs> but never mind. As it is here. <laughs> okay. And thank you so much for coming back for this final episode in our three-part series. Um, during our last podcast, you and I had a pretty interesting conversation about macronutrients. But today, we'll be thinking about some of the concerns with low-carbohydrate diets. And I guess it's fair to say that low-carbohydrate diets are still a bit contentious in the nutrition and diabetes space. Would you like to comment on why you think that might be? Yeah, actually, I think that there are actually, it's, it's much less of a contentious topic these days. I think that more and more major diabetes centres are actually really starting to embrace the diet. And recently we've seen both DA and the DUK, the Diabetes UK, sorry, they've in recent months issued position statements suggesting that the thinking is already starting to change and they're beginning to respond to the real groundswell of consumer response to the approach. So it feels like they're starting to consider it as a valid and effective way to manage diabetes. So the landscape is really changing rapidly and that's really exciting, particularly for a health professional in this space. But I do understand that there are still some probably misconceptions, I think, regarding the low-carb diet. And I think there's two reasons for this. And firstly, there's that fear that the low-carbohydrate diet excludes certain food groups potentially leading to the nutrition deficiencies. And then second, there's a concern that the total and in particular the saturated fat content of the diet is an increased risk for heart disease. But in actual fact, the low-carb diet really focuses on reducing the intake of those high-load carbohydrate foods and increasing the consumption of a variety of much more nutrient-dense foods. And we discussed that in the last podcast. Some carbohydrates are still obviously consumed, we're not eliminating them all, 
but it's in the form of unprocessed whole food sources such as vegetables and even some fruits. So from my experience, nutrient intake actually generally improves in most of my patients. And reason being is that the empty calories that they've been eating from those processed carbs, they're replacing with high quality proteins, essential fats, fibres, and more vitamins and minerals from their increased intake of non-starchy veg. It's really interesting that uh, people find the low carb um, a bit of a contentious topic because the nutrition community actually really accepts and helps patients to manage both vegetarian and vegan diets. And these are diets that actually do exclude food groups. And these food groups do contain vital nutrients. So it kind of begs the question as to why the low carb approach with all its benefits for people with diabetes and those without is still really growing in acceptance. And just, I suppose, from my, pers my, my perspective, that I really want to express how passionately I feel about the response to these concerns. And this can be shown in the article that I mentioned yes, uh, in the previous um, podcast, which I co-authored with Dr. Karen Zinn from the University of Auckland and the low-carb endurance athlete, Beck Johnson. We published in the 2018 BMJ Open. It's called Assessing the Nutrient Intake of a Low-Carb, High-Fat Diet, a Hypothetical Case Study Design. And in that paper, we wanted to assess the micronutrient intake of a low-carb, high-fat diet. And we did this under two conditions of saturated fat thresholds. So one of them, we met the recommendations of less than 10% total energy from saturated fat. And then the other one, we just allowed saturated fat ad libitum. So our results, results actually showed that Despite those macronutrient proportions not aligning with the current national new dietary guidelines, that a well-planned low-carb, high-fat meal plan can actually be considered micronutrient replete. And I'm happy to share the access to that. I'm happy to share that article because it's open access, and I really encourage listeners to have a read. Thanks for that, Amy. And and I'm sure that article will be up on the local on the learning management system, so uh, list, members and listeners will be able to. Uh, have a look at that. So just moving on, I just wonder if you could comment on the common nutrients of concern perhaps in terms of inadequate intake then. Yeah, the ones I commonly hear are fibre, B vitamins and calcium. They're the three concerns I think. And so if we look at fibre and B vitamins together, the concern is that by removing the high load carbohydrates, so our breads, our cereals, pastas, rice, that we'll end up missing out on fibre and in particular, um, vitamin B as well. However, if you're doing a low-carb diet well, you'll be replacing those high-load carbs with nutrient-dense low-carb options and in particular non-starchy veggies, things like nuts and some fruits such as berries. And these are high in both fibre and B vitamins. So in our clinical case article, which I just mentioned, we showed that a well-planned low-carb diet actually exceeded recommended fibre intake in both men and women by 50%. So that's a large amount. And we also exceeded vitamin B1 by about 30 to 50% across those four meal plans. In clinic, I find that fibre is very rarely an issue. When people increase their non-starchy vegetable intake, their fibre intake is very easily met. The other nutrient people seem to be concerned about is calcium, and I think that might stem from the misconception that dairy is actually eliminated on a low-carb diet. In fact, the consumption of calcium-rich foods generally increases. Things such as natural yogurt, cheese, nuts, seeds, canned salmon, even some of the leafy greens. 
It's really only cow's milk that people will remove on a low-carb diet, but even that depends entirely on the level of carbohydrate restriction, and we mentioned that in the very first podcast. So depending on how, um, what kind of level of restriction they're aiming to meet, some people choose to still incorporate some level of cow's milk or some small amount of cow's milk. In our clinical case article, the four meal plans included a variety of calcium-rich sources, and that was at all meals and snacks, and all of our plans exceeded calcium intake by 10 to 25%. In my clinic, I generally find that calcium intake increases. So most people will come to see me and they've been following the recommended low-fat diet, and so they've eliminated cheeses, they've eliminated full-fat yogurt, some of them even full-fat milk. Whereas on a low-carb approach, people are usually ecstatic that they get to add cheese back into their menu. Okay, Amy, I I guess one of the things is um, around potential concerns associated with excessive intake of other macronutrients, namely fat and protein, when reducing carbohydrates. Um, So are there any people you would not recommend this to? For example, someone with cardiovascular or renal disease. There are some misconceptions that the low-carb diet is particularly high in protein and then particularly in saturated fat as well. Um, But both of these, I think, do warrant further discussion. Firstly, protein. So the idea that the low-carb diet is automatically high in protein is actually incorrect. When we remove high-load carb foods from the diet, the intake of protein-rich foods such as animal meats, eggs, tofu, may slightly increase. But these foods are satiating, so they're actually self-limiting. And we talked a little bit yesterday about how I like to make sure that my patients are meeting their protein requirements, but I also don't want them drastically exceeding them as well. So I make sure they understand the importance of protein-rich foods and the serving numbers and kind of portion sizes that they need that will help them meet those daily requirements. From a health uh, health perspective, high protein intakes have been studied in relation to cancer, renal disease, obesity, coronary artery disease, osteoporosis, but any there's not really any links that are supported by a large amount of evidence. And I know that many people are concerned specifically about the impact of higher protein diets on kidney function, and that's important when we're talking about diabetes. But there have been a number of recent studies that have looked at this and none of them are actually able to link protein intake to adverse markers of kidney health in those with no baseline kidney disease. So we're talking about people with healthy kidney function. Some studies have suggested that a moderate protein intake is optimal for those with pre-existing kidney disease. So that's something that we would take into account totally separately if that was an issue. But because of the overall real lack of evidence, the nutrient reference values for Australia and New Zealand have actually recommended just that the upper limit we look at for protein is about 25% energy from protein, which again, we talked about in the last podcast. And that's actually equivalent to the current 95th percentile of intake in Australia and New Zealand. So most people are already eating that much protein, if not more. In our clinical case article, the four meal plans that we included, we made sure there was a variety of different proteins at each meal and snack. And the protein intake ranged anywhere from 22 to 26% of total energy. As we said, we tried to aim to keep it less than 25. And that one case where we did exceed that 25 was that actually the female uh, meal plan where we had to reduce the saturated fat to 10%. So by choosing the leaner proteins 
the protein, um, sorry, yeah, the leaner protein cuts, the actual um, proportion of protein increased. Okay, thanks for that, Amy. So do you monitor or get concerned about someone's intake of saturated fats and, and cholesterol in this kind of uh, eating pattern? I think it's important to make it clear here that a low-carb diet isn't a, or a low-carb high-fat diet, sorry, that I recommend to my patients isn't a low-carb, high-saturated fat diet. So we're not aiming to increase saturated fat specifically. The emphasis, as we talked about before, is on incorporating a variety of different fats. And those fats are put back into the, well, put into the diet to provide the bulk of energy. They provide a wide range of the essential and beneficial nutrients and the functions, and they actually have the least impact on somebody's blood glucose levels. So yes, the low carb, high fat diet approach promotes the consumption of full fat animal products. And as a result, the saturated fat intake will generally or can generally exceed the current NHMRC guidelines of less than 10% energy from saturated fat. But What's important to look at is the epidemiological studies and the random control trials that we have supporting the long-held diet heart hypothesis and this 10% saturated fat guidelines, they've really come into question and the evidence is really pointing towards a high carb intake as the causative factor in heart disease. The scientific community is really asking now for an, expl an explanation and they want further research and it, we definitely do need more research in this area. So it's kind of a watch this space scenario. And what we need to remember is that people with diabetes, and this is both pe people with type 1 and type 2, they have the added impact and probably, well, and definitely I think, the most prolific concern of high blood glucose levels when it comes to their long health uh, long-term health complications and in particular cardiovascular complications. So a low-carbohydrate, high-fat dietary approach is known and certainly will help to alleviate this most pressing issue of blood glucose um, management. And as I mentioned previously, the paper we wrote, we looked at developing those low-carb, high-fat diets that met nutrient reference guidelines under the two different conditions of the saturated fat thresholds. So we did one that met the recommendations of less than 10% energy from saturated fat and one where saturated fat was just eaten as per. The restricted saturated fat diet we created provided 9.6% of total energy for saturated fat for females and 10.6% for males. So we actually were able to stick to that 10% recommendation. Yes, we did increase by 0.6 for the males, but the only way we could actually decrease that was to decrease the amount of avocado and certain seed oils and olive oils and macadamia nuts, foods that actually contained more unsaturated fats. Um, and we just felt that it was beneficial just to keep that 0.6 in because those um, foods contained a, a, an array of other vital nutrients. In the ad libitum saturated fat men, uh, menus or meal plans, the saturated fat totaled 28 and 15% respectively. So what's really interesting with this is that anecdotal evidence, and particularly from my clinic, that people who are just eating saturated fat as per, they're not counting what their intakes are, generally I find it sits anywhere between about 15 to 18%. So that leads me to believe that patients are really taking on board this emphasis of just consuming a variety of fat sources, not just sticking to particular um, saturated fat intakes, but kind of not even having to really think about it. They're just eating a variety and that's giving them that um, still fairly quite low percentage intake from saturated fat. So I guess the bottom line is that don't do this by yourself. It's really important to get help from a dietitian who can guide you 
to what a what a low carb diet really should look like and ensure that you are actually meeting your energy and micronutrient requirements. So a healthy diet really is one that will align with your diabetes goals and your overall health goals, but also leave you feeling full, leave you feeling energetic and really feeling mo motivated to keep this up, so keep it going long term. And the low carb diet can definitely tick all these boxes if it's if it's done right. Thanks for that, Amy. Uh, we've touched on this a little bit in previous podcasts, but how are low carbohydrate diets different than the keto diet, which appears to be fairly popular at the moment? The difference between the two is really in the total grams of carbohydrate consumed per day. So if we go back to those 2015 Feynman definitions from the first podcast, the low carb diets classified as anything less than 130 grams of carbs per day, whereas a ketogenic diet is much lower. So we're looking at around 20 to 30 grams per day. And at that level of intake, the body is adapting to relying purely on the ingested fat or even stored fat, as I mentioned, if someone's looking to lower their calorie intake overall um, and using that fat as an energy source. So the fats are broken down and the, key, and the ketones, which are a byproduct of that process. We talked a little bit yesterday about differentiating between ketosis and diabetic keto ketoacidosis and I think that that would be a really good um, in, a really important point to reiterate um, because I feel that uh, there's often confusion especially in our profession um, dietetics and diabetes education between that state of ketosis and diabetic ketoacidosis so being on a ketogenic diet doesn't eliminate which this is sorry this is probably the most important part being on a ketogenic diet does not eliminate the person's need uh, for insulin if they're insulin dependent diabetic um, they still need that insulin to cover any carbohydrate that they're eating and potentially any protein that they're eating and obviously still requiring their basal insulin thanks for that amy i guess it would be really nice to look at this from a practical sense and i, I wonder if you would you be able to tell us about some of your patients' experiences with a low-carbohydrate diet? Um, and do some individuals thrive on the diet? And I guess on the flip side, have there been any that have disliked or it or even cheated for want of a better word. Yeah, this is the stuff that everybody wants to hear and does it work in real life? And yes, it actually really does. And I see it every day. And the vast majority of my patients have really positive results and not only with their blood glucose, but with energy levels and their general overall sense of well-being. I can rattle off a number of pre and post low carb HbA1c results that in my eyes, they're just incredible. But there is one patient in particular, and this is a patient who I presented a case study on last year at the Dietitians Association conference, and she's just the perfect example. Before adopting a low-carb diet, a HbA1c was 8.3%. It had gone anywhere up to 12.6% in, in the 17 years that she'd had diabetes, type 1 diabetes. After just six months on low-carb, her HbA1c had gone down to 6.3%, and that was her lowest ever. So clinically, her LDL, which is the so-called bad cholesterol, had gone down and her HDL, which is the good cholesterol, had gone up and her weight was stable, which is exactly what she wanted. So clinically, those are all amazing numbers. But what was more profound for her was the change in herself. 
So she'd gone from having multiple hypoglycemic events per day to having very few per month. This was just, this was a game changer for her. It really improved her confidence, particularly at work. She has her own hairdressing business and she's also a performer. She's a musician here in Perth. So she was much more confident on stage, much more confident when she had clients and also much more confident at the gym. So she found that she could get through her gym sessions without the need to treat um, for a hypo and then without the need to do crazy corrections afterwards. As the mother of two young boys, one of the really um, things that hit home when she, that she said to me was that she no longer felt scared when she got behind the wheel of the car um, and she felt safe to drive with her boys and that really hits home. So she also was she found the diet really easy to follow, which was really great. Um, she's simple to prepare. She had no concerns when eating out at restaurants. She found that they were always accommodating. So she's a really good example. But I guess on the flip side, and this is with any diet, there are sometimes people who will struggle to maintain it. And what I generally find is that, that these people are in actual fact just not meeting their requirements for those remaining macronutrients, the protein and the fat. So inevitably, inevitably, what will happen is that they're not meeting their body's total energy needs. And if we starve our body of overall energy, we're going to get those cravings and we're going to be drawn to foods that supply the easiest and most rapid form of energy, which is carbohydrate. Once we then go through what they're doing, take a look at their intake and discuss and go over the importance of them meeting the protein and in particular the fat because that's the one everyone's still a bit scared of the majority of people will find that the low carbs lifestyle is really satiating it's delicious and it's actually really easy to maintain so amy we've actually asked this question uh, previously but i thought it might be worth asking it again do you think this diet is good for all patients with diabetes or should it simply be individualised for each person for their conditions and stage of life? Yeah, look, any person wishing to follow really any type of diet should get personalised advice. There's just no one diet suits all. And as we've just discussed, meeting your body's energy needs are really important. So even people who want to lose weight, they still need to meet a certain level of caloric needs. And I do believe that a low carbohydrate diet in some capacity will help most people with diabetes to, better, to really better manage their blood glucose levels. However, I do completely understand that there will be a cohort of these people for whom the diet might not be optimal. And this may be based on personal preferences or it might be based on other complicating comorbidities that they might have. Well, this is the last question I have for you today, Amy, but do you recommend that people with diabetes modify their macronutrients under the supervision of an APD? Which sounds like a silly question to ask a dietitian, <laughs> I guess, but interesting. Well, yes, as a dietitian, I'm saying 100%. <laughs> so, look, a dietitian who really is open to discussing a low-carb diet, I guess that's what it, what's important, and one that has a good knowledge base of low-carb diet and in the context of diabetes as well. So the dietitian must also be prepared to work really closely with the diabetes educator, particularly if they don't feel like they have an, um, that base background knowledge for diabetes, um, because it's the diabetes educator who also needs to be involved as the insulin and medication requirements are going to change. Well, thank you, Amy, once again. Um, it's been really great to speak with you over the last three podcasts and, and it really has been very enlightening, I, hope, I think. And I want to thank 
the members for, and listeners for taking the time to listen to this podcast. And as I've said before, if you have any questions, please feel free to email them to education at adea.com.au. And if you, as I've also said before, if you haven't already done so, please feel free to check out Amy's rap video parodies on YouTube. They're fantastic. Yes, you'll have to check out the Usher one that we've done recently on the Type 1 Diabetes Family Centre website. Great. There you go, everybody. <laughs> Go to it. I actually dragged my family in on that one, so you'll see my husband and my seven-year-old. Oh, great. <laughs> what, family that work together, stay together and all that? Exactly, <laughs> yes. Lots of nights practising in around the kitchen table. Terrific. Okay, thanks so much again, Amy. And until Thank next you. time, goodbye to everybody. Thank you.